Hey everybody, you're in the green room for Disrupt TV. We're talking about Twitter and Elon Musk. Just kidding. <laughs> we're going to do some quick introductions like we always do um, with our guests and we'll go in reverse order. So, um, so Susan, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hey, Ray. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining. Um, my, thanks for having me, too. It's Susan Brady. I'm calling in from Needham, Massachusetts. We're going to talk about uh, a book I just wrote with uh, Janet Foudy of Deloitte and Lynn Perry Wooten of Simmons University called Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. Woohoo! All right. Thank you very much. So, yeah. Dustin, where are we calling in from? What are we talking about today? Calling in from Austin, Texas. Uh, we're going to be talking about government technology or GovTech plus smart cities. So thanks for having me. Longtime watcher, first time on the show. I can't believe it's the first time. I swear to God we had you on the show, but apparently not. <laughs> so we're like, what? Shajit, where are you calling in from? What's going on? So, Well, Mumbai, um, I'm here to learn from all my colleagues and yourself. And more importantly, talking about a lot has changed in the last two, three years since the pandemic has hit us. How do you stay relevant in the new world? Really, really good topics. And uh, with that, we're going to kick off. I'll pan it over back to you, Elle. We'll do the countdown, and then we will start the show. Thanks, everybody, for joining, and we'll see you live. All right. Three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television, business, and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal. Just about every week, turn on the TV and you'll see my good friend and co-host, Ray. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, yes, Twitter, at RWANG. Zero. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Ashtar, Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, I also see him on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. So, but it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And of course, who do we have to kick it off today, Vala? We uh, also have a long distance award uh, winner as our first guest dialing in from Mumbai, Shajit Mishra, Chief Information Officer and Head of Boot Services at Aditya Birla Management Corp. 
Should you join a DTF Berlick Group, uh, a Fortune 500 League 46 billion plus conglomerate in May of 2018 and oversees multiple innovation areas of data and analytics, consumer-centric innovation, innovation fund ecosystems, brand development, sustainability and IT for the group. During his 34 years global career spanning more than three decades across businesses and functions, PL, marketing, supply chain ventures, and across geographies, Asia Pacific, Africa, Middle East, Shujit has helped transform many brands and businesses. Shujit works with uh, leading global universities such as MIT, Wharton, Thai, and advises many state and national governments on creating sustainable innovation ecosystems. Welcome, Shujit, to the Shrub TV. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry for cutting your bio short. You've done a lot. But we only have 20 minutes. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. And, and I think, you know, let's think about it. We, we talk about the five eyes, like invasion, inventory, infection, interest rates, right? I mean, it's just incredible, like what, what's going on across the board, right? And I mean, and we've, we've faced almost every single thing that's, that's possibly happened to us. Um, what's change? What's going on here? Uh, why are we, you know, where are we? seeing major shifts and across the business environment and uh, you know what, what are you seeing what, what are some of those big things where we have to reevaluate theories and existing assumptions right because something has changed like we call this the great refactoring but what do you see oh i think we may have a connection issue um, can you hear me we can yes, hear no. you again. Yeah, please continue. So, and if you have trouble, yeah. just refresh, come back in, and uh, we'll yeah. cut, we'll carry the conversation. So, yeah, yeah. So, I think that in the the pandemic context uh, has really shifted the uh, business environment dramatically, and it has forced us to reevaluate old theories and assumptions. Um, there is, there are five major trends that have transformed, and in the way you look at it, this impacts all dimensions of innovations, talent, and the future of work. The first trend is reassessing through purpose. Purpose is going to be the core to any organization's success. Employees are going through a process of deep soul searching and questioning in what to do. Success stories, humanized leadership, and sharing them over the team is going to be a big area of future need. Flexibility to remain agile is my second trend. You need an agile mindset. And the shift is not restricted only to digital arena. We know what digital has done to this world. It needs policies and processes to support it. That's that's something that I'm seeing across the board impacting uh, not just our businesses, but lives. The third is, of course, everybody knows about it. Everybody talks about it, the digital first mindset. Um, the need for digital talent to create these digital transformations Yeah, I mean, the talent aspect of digital transformation is very, very important. And, and I think we're seeing that. It's a huge yeah. issue. Yeah. We are not, the other thing that it has, it has forced us to do is to reimagine growth exponentially and not incrementally. Because the change around with the consumers is way faster than the change in the businesses. The fourth trend is one plus one plus one is not three. It's I believe that organizations in the future will have to bring 50% of their revenues through partnerships and ecosystems beyond their businesses in the future. And last and not the least, the fifth trend is creating value from ESG, not looking at ESG 
as something that you have to, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a law that you have to adhere to. The new lens that you have to take on is to look at how do you create a competitive advantage for ESG, uh, whether it's circularity, energy, there are lots of opportunities in that area, but there's a need for us to look at ESG, not, not as something that you have to be forced to do, but something that will create a competitive edge. Those are some of the changes or the trends that I'm seeing that has got accelerated in the last two years. Shajit, that's a, that's a very robust, complete set of impacts. Purpose-led innovation, flexibility to remain agile, digital first mindset, reimagining growth exponentially, partnerships and ecosystems, and creating value from ESGs. I think those are wonderful uh, and, and significant drivers in terms of how you succeed in this uh, decentralized, hyper-connected, digital-first economy. Which one of these impacts do you think is the most struggle for, let's say, the enterprise? Not not the small or medium, but where where is the large enterprise, medium to large enterprise, struggling the most? Is it purpose-led? Is it value creation from ESGs? Where do you see the, the highest level of friction in terms of companies adapting to this new normal? A lot of things happening uh, with the companies, but partnership is not something that comes naturally to large corporations with, with young startups. It doesn't come naturally at all. And, you know, I always keep telling people, startups are not employees. You have to work with them differently. It's not partnerships only with startups. It's partnership with academia. It's partnership with, with uh, governments. It's partnership with large organizations to co-create value for the future. And I think this partnership role, the fact that you have to create ecosystem through partnerships, you cannot do it alone. The world has changed. You should not try to do things alone. It's going to be partnerships that are going to create the biggest difference in the future. Perhaps that's one area where I think a lot needs to be moved in the needle. The second, I think, is sustainability. I think people look at sustainability, as I said, through a lens of... of um, an adherence that we have to do. Um, yes, that's true. But if you were to really create the advantage for the future, uh, and I think we better move quickly on this, it's about creating competitive advantage. It is possible to make that happen, provided everybody comes together. Otherwise, I, just, I think, yeah, go ahead. Otherwise, I think it's I'm going just going to gonna follow up. Where is the role of government in terms of getting the private and public sector like education together and foster and cultivate a healthy ecosystem? So I think lots of governments are beginning to realize this. I can take examples from my own experience uh, of, of Israel. I can take an example of um, you know, some of the uh, Central Eastern Europe uh, countries. And of course, uh, they cannot just connect with government. They have to connect government to corporate, to their innovation ecosystems. People thus far were thinking one government alone can do it. There are a combination of ideas that a government A and a government B with a corporate C can actually come together across the world and create an advantage which will be useful for the entire world. I think that shift has begun. Has it moved at the pace that it should? No. Secondly, governments are also willing to invest in areas, particularly for their academia or the startups that have come from their country uh, to find consumption centers in, in across the world, uh, particularly in the area of, again, sustainability. 
because sustainability and innovation are expensive opportunities that the governments are willing to in, are in, are willing to invest for the first bit as we go ahead i think there are changes clearly happening between governments uh, it's a matter of time because the world has to realize the only way to go forward is to partner yeah, it's a great point, right? And we see new business models as we are going forward uh, in terms of those partnerships. We think these business models, you know, some of them are built on data. Some of them are built on um, new types of ecosystem models. Some are built on in the Web 3.0, um, you know, decentralized models that are actually popping up. Some are even built as, you know, partnerships with your customers, right? So we're seeing new types of business models emerge. Uh, when you're talking to clients, what do you see as some of those top areas uh, that are emerging? Like, what are you advising and guiding clients on? I think B, in the area of B2C, that bit of working with ecosystems and creating value from ecosystems is beginning to happen. Uh, in the B2B space, that's also catching up slowly. And we are seeing a lot of work uh, coming up in across procurement, project management, uh, demand supply matching, etc. Uh, of course, uh, Service as an opportunity is another thing that seems to be coming up quite well. It's not just about products. It's about products, services through experiences that companies are looking at. And I think uh, John Deere is a great example, which I'm sure you guys are all aware of. If you look at how the company has moved from being just not an agricultural um, a, a, you know, a, a company that sells tractors to being a company that actually advises farmers through digital solutions. Um, one, one, I think, uh, area where uh, there's a lot that's beginning to come together in the in the uh, world academia world, like I said again, and the government world is sustainability and innovation. Uh, that's the other big piece that seems to be coming together. But but just to, just to put the context right, I mean, I did realize a forty six billion dollar, almost fifty billion dollar U.S. Comp USD company. I mean, these, these are some large things and shifts. Um, the area that you work in is really helping customers with that strategy, that advice, and that innovation. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you know, I, I, uh, I have my oldest is attending university. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm not sure if I'm convinced uh, higher education is a good product. Um, it's expensive, uh, so it's not accessible to most. Uh, students don't finish in time. And I would argue in many instances, what they're learning is not quite applicable when they find their first job. So, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm an I'm, I'm <laughs> undergraduate graduate product. You know, it helped shape my career. Uh, so, but I do think it's an area that's ripe for disruption, for business model innovation, better product, more affordable, more accessible, and more relevant. Uh, can you talk about business model innovation? And it doesn't have to be higher education, but which sectors, which industries are serious about finding new sources of revenue by reinventing their products and services in order to compete in this new digital first economy? So let me let me try and uh, talk about education. I completely agree with you. By the way, uh, I have both my daughters who have come from uh, University of Chicago. Great school. But about 80,000 80, a year tuition. <laughs> <laughs> well, 85. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> he got the bill, apparently. <laughs> it is expensive. It is expensive. No question. 
But I, I honestly believe education is not a waste at all. Okay, that's my I fundamental agree. belief. Having said that, how do you make it more relevant? I, I, I really believe that corporates must come together with the educational institutions. And there must be a six-month project that should be given to every kid in a cross-functional manner. Get cross-functional kids, work with the real project, and if it goes through, maybe that's where they get employed. Uh, and I think some of the some of the universities are beginning to think about it. Uh, by the way, I also advise educational institutions to relook at their their curriculum for the future. Coming to your next question on where do I see business business models emerging? I think clearly in the B two C retail area, there is a lot that's happening which is very very successful. There is a lot that's also happening in the space of the value chain, which is quietly happening. Mm, uh, you know, which is not not seen so much. Uh, in the consumer space, but there's a lot happening in the value chain space as well. Um, there is, there is through the digital route, there is, of course, how do you improve operational efficiency? But there's a lot happening in the area of what I believe is transformation for the future. And those are all happening through models. Let me take one example to make a point. Sure. As of today, Altebilla Group works with around about a hundred number of startups across the world. 50% of them are digital. We give our startup scale that no other no other company can give across the world. Two, we work with the startups as they are startups, they're not our employees. Size does not matter. We fast track our learning. We fast track our learning. Sometimes we co-create with them and create a better product for the future. We make sure we operate with minority shares so that we let, we let startups be startups. If you asked me five years back, would you have thought of this? The answer is no. I think there are new business models emerging in this partnership area with startups, academia, and governments. There are lots that I cannot talk about given the, the, the that's going on at the moment, but I can tell you there's a lot happening with partnerships um, in this space to create new business models. You know, we are real excited, right? And it's those business models. Um, some of the things that I've been talking about are on data-driven digital networks, right? We have creator economies hitting data-driven digital networks in terms of the market size. And of course, what's happening in the middle between that connection, not just of information and insights, uh, but also the brokering of decisions that's going to happen in the future. Uh, that part is, is, is one part of the economy. But if I just want to get started, what do I need to do? What's important, uh, you know, as a first step uh, that you would suggest? And there are lots of things that are impacting work per se, whether it is, uh, you know, who's going to do the work or what work can be automated, which is the work itself, the workforce, who are the people, who, what is the new talent? Uh, is employee, the definition of employee need not be a permanent employee. It could be gig workers. It could be part-time work. How to integrate those people? And third is what we have seen in the, in the last two years, the workplace itself. Where do you work from? Yeah. Actually, you could work from anywhere. Fundamentally, many things have changed. The forces impacting work have changed dramatically. But things have not changed. And we believe that the future of creating a competitive advantage remains on the two big pillars. If you look at an A symbol and you look at consumer customer centricity as one big pillar, and the second big pillar of the A is driving business. I'm choosing the word carefully, not sustainability, but driving businesses sustainably. 
if you look at these two as the two pillars, everything else, digital, mm. innovation, both inside out and outside in, partnerships, whether it's startups, value chain, government organizations, large corporates or academia, these are all enablers. Fundamentally, what has not changed is that you have to think like, a, there is nothing called a B2B. There is a C at the end of every B2B for God's sake. Think like a consumer company <laughs> and operate like a responsible technology and manufacturing company. So thinking like a consumer company and operating like a responsible technology manufacturing company is going to be the future of success. I love that. We are here with Sridhar Mishra, Chief Innovation Officer and Head Group Services of Aditya Bureau Management Corporation, um, Private Limited, and of course, uh, we are thankful for you for staying up so late to be with us today on the show. So, thank you. Absolutely, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a good night. See you in Mumbai, maybe. <laughs> so. I love that. Behind every B two B is a C. He's right. I mean, people do business with people at the end of the day, and you build relationships with people, not products or services. Okay. We have an award-winning second guest, right? Uh, Dustin Hesler is the Chief Innovation Officer for eRepublic. eRepublic is the nation's only media and research company focused exclusively on state and local government. Dustin is also an Eisenhower Fellow and Program Faculty for the Certified Public Management Program at Texas State University. As a former Chief Innovation Officer and Assistant City Manager for the City of Manor, Texas, a city outside of Austin, Dustin quickly built a track record and a reputation as early innovator in civic tech. Dustin pioneered government use of commercial technologies not, um, be, not before used in public sector, including quick response, barcodes, crowdsourcing, and gamification. Dustin was named as one of the nation's top 25 doer, dreamer, and driver of government technologies. I haven't made a list of top 2,500, and he's top 25. <laughs> and was recently recognized as a 2021 Business Transformation 150 leader by this company I know, Constellation Research. You can follow Dustin on Twitter. He must be an early adopter because he was able to get his first and last name. Dustin Hazler, uh, D-U-S-C-I-N. H-A-I-S-L-E-R. Welcome, Dustin, to Disrupt TV. So great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Love for having a top 25 award winner on our show. So thank you. <laughs> well, you know what? This BT150 Alumni Network is pretty amazing. And congrats on so many things that you've been doing. Um, when you think about GovTech and where we are, that's an area where we could all benefit, right? It's a public good and the ability to help state and local governments use more technology. How did you get started, right? I mean, this is, I mean, you've got an amazing career. Let's start and say, hey, when did you, when did you kick this part off? So yeah, and, do us, yeah. and, and do us a favor when Ray just casually throws GovTech in there can you just kind of tell us the history of what that means GovTech. exactly <laughs> yeah yeah so GovTech is government technology so it's basically the market that all the investors told you to avoid when you raised capital right you know, government <laughs> and education so but it's actually a, a market that is really it's not a new market i mean we've had GovTech forever but you had a lot of older kind of incumbents that had locked up those contracts fast forward to today you know, GovTech is a $130.5 billion industry uh, wow. spread out across state and local government agencies across the country. And technology is central to all of that. And it's incredible to see kind of everything that's happening there. As far as my story, kind of back to Ray's question, I was an accidental public servant. You know, I had a career in banking, stumbled into our bank president, retired and hired me to be a city CFO, twisted my arm. I ended up there. And as a tightwad finance guy, I uh, 
knew enough about technology to uh, to know that I wanted to do it myself. And we partnered with the Obama administration, partnered with the Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford under BJ Fogg, and really did some crazy things oh, wow. with collective intelligence and finding ways to extend, you know, the, the value of technology all the way down to kind of the constituent level. And then, you know, from there, I just became addicted at, you know, being able to, to work in the market and see the changes that we were doing impact people's lives day in and day out. And, you know, government's a great industry because everything that exists in the enterprise, every vertical that exists in the enterprise also exists inside of City Hall. So you have a great kind of Petri dish of potential and opportunity and so much need that's there. So it's an incredible time to be a public servant uh, in the market today or to be an entrepreneur or an existing company that is serving that market. I love that. I love that. Listen, anyone who color codes his books in the bookshelf <laughs> is someone who has creativity, precision, and understands the power of art and beauty. Uh, so, okay, so you work in the market. That's an intersection of technology and government, GovTech. Uh, and you've said GovTech is going through an app store moment of sorts. Um, uh, let's talk about that. What, yeah. what, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, if you think back to when the iPhone was first released, it was a 2007. Yep. Yeah, 2007. Exactly right. It was a closed ecosystem. You know, you got what you got. And if you wanted to add additional capabilities, you had to jailbreak your phone and risk, you know, potentially getting bricked in an update. Uh, but fast forward, you know, to 2008, uh, Apple released the App Store and basically it democratized access to that platform and gave you the ability to add capabilities to that existing platform. So you could get a flashlight app before they standardized it in the UI. You could get all of this other stuff that increased the value of the phone and that ecosystem. And so government is very similar from an analogy standpoint to that you know, moment. You know, for the longest time, it was a locked up ecosystem of you know, large contracts, you know, lots of relationship driven buys and, you know, a lot of monolithic multi-year deals. But now cloud has kind of democratized access to government and you've got a variety of kind of disparate forces that have created this perfect storm of this app store moment. I mean, you got changing expectations both inside and outside of government. When the pandemic happened, people were like, no, government needs to move quicker. I need to call unemployment insurance. I need to you know, get some of these things handled. And so their expectations increased. You got a new wave of government leaders that are coming in, you know, many from the private sector that or, you know, looking at these green screens saying, no, we're not going to do it that way. And you've got existing people that have kind of risen through the ranks that are also challenging those norms. You've got cloud that's unlocked, you know, the infrastructure side. You don't have to build a hundred million dollar data center in order to build state of the art infrastructure. Now you can go partner with someone and do it. You've got a lot of increased funding that's available for tech too. I mean, you look at all of the federal stimulus, you know, from IIJA to ARPA to CARES, that's created once in a generational funding for state and local agencies to reimagine the way they deliver services. Um, you know, the pandemic loosened a lot of procurement rules and regulations. You know, the notion of doing a, a Zoom court hearing, you know, prior to the pandemic was crazy. <laughs> then you fast forward and now you got lawyer cat and all these other things that have kind of emerged from there. Right. So uh, and then, you know, the incumbents in the market had to innovate. And so the market started to really accelerate incumbents, found new ways to kind of, you know, latch onto this platform mentality. But you have a new class of entrepreneurs that are coming in that are looking at tackling complex government challenges and doing some amazing things. And they're raising funding. And I think that's probably been the biggest shift. I mean, last year alone in 2021, GovTech companies, companies only focused on state and local government as a primary customer, raised over a billion dollars in venture capital, which wow. is crazy to think wow. about. You know, government as an industry, now, now there's so many investors at all stages, you know, from seed all the way through 
that are looking at helping fund and scale companies in this space because they saw it was recession proof and that spending increased during the pandemic because the need rose. And so it's such an exciting time to see all of those forces collide. And now government agencies have best of breed capabilities that they can leverage to you know, tackle whatever challenges that they have to tackle. So it's an exciting time. That's amazing. That's a huge number, Ray, a billion in venture capital it in one year. For GovTech, wow. this is a huge number. I mean, it's never been like that. Maybe a couple hundred million, like a billion is at a scale we haven't seen before. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just amazing. Now, you're probably seeing a bunch of these hot tech opportunities uh, that are popping in, it's a bunch of unmet needs. Um, definitely, you know, ZoomCat isn't one of them. <laughs> but, you know, if you're sitting you know, at the 394th Judicial Court somewhere in Texas. But anyways, the point being is like, you know, that's not one of them. But here's, uh, you've, you're sitting on this, right? You guys are covering it. You're seeing it. You're in the middle of the action. Tell us what's hot, right? What are people looking at? What are some of these unmet needs? So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been interesting to see how the market has evolved because for the longest time, we saw a lot of the shiny object innovation where someone would deploy some SaaS app that was great, but it was kind of a nice to have. It wasn't mission critical. Then you started to see technology work its way towards the back end. So some of the hottest areas today are actually, you know, some of the unsexy problems in government that have to be tackled, like system mm -hmm. modernization. You know, looking at the system of record, many agencies don't have a CRM and they have, you know, kind of older school ERPs and they have to look at how do we modernize some of these core yeah. systems in the way that we do business. Yeah, Val is, you know, right there. There's your guy right there. So. Um, you know, how do we modernize those systems? How do we connect all these disparate data sets? One interesting trend that happened with the pandemic, you know, we talk about shadow IT, where you have departments that have kind of their own IT that they run. We saw shadow apps emerge, where you had departments that had to move quicker than the CIO, and they deployed applications at the edge. And so now the CIOs are trying to reconcile all of this, bring it back into the enterprise stack and wrap it up and secure it. And so there's a lot of need when it comes to these enterprise kind of wrappers thinking about the data layer. You've also got a lot of technology needs around augmenting employees, not replacing employees, but augmenting them. So finding ways to use RPA, AI, ML, low code, no code to enhance the ability for employees to serve more people, to more effectively do their job. So a lot of innovation kind of happening at that people level. And then lastly, kind of the data side of things, you know, agencies were glued, we were all glued to the John Hopkins dashboards during the pandemic and we used that to make policy. Go Hopkins. Yeah. So now, now we are conditioned to say, okay, if we could use that to make policy decisions, what else can we do with data for real, right? We've had dashboards forever, but how do we actually use dashboards for real to make decisions that have an inherent impact on operations that we can prove? And so there's a big emphasis on operationalizing data today as well. Our last guest, Dustin, kind of uh, alluded to the importance of ecosystem building and being inclusive of startups uh, and, uh, and from seed investing to series A, B, C, D. And, 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 uh, and my company is, uh, has been consistently one of the most active corporate venture capital uh, entities in, in the U.S., I think, uh, between uh, Google Ventures and Salesforce Ventures, and then Coinbase recently, believe it or not, has been super active. Uh, so we believe in the startup ecosystem. To tune of investing in a new startup on a, almost a weekly cadence, so north of 52 some odd startup investments per year. What's the government appetite and ability to include, um, you know, young private companies in terms of building their technology stack and their ability to create value? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great, uh, a great question. And for the longest time, it was difficult for startups to interface with government, especially larger government agencies, because, you know, you had requirements for infrastructure that you just couldn't afford to meet. Yeah. You didn't have enough runway or capital to get to that point. That's where Collaud kind of democratized access to that because you didn't have to worry about meeting all of those infrastructure check boxes. You could just partner with a company that did it for you and build capabilities on top of that stack. And so I think that's kind of where we're at today. Right now, you can have best of breed application capabilities that are delivered on a secure stack that can come from a company of three people that are solving real tangible problems. So it's so exciting. I mean, in fact, five years ago, we started something called a GovTech 100 just to try to find who are companies, you know, both startups and, you know, existing yeah. incumbents that are solely focused on state and local government as a market. And we started recognizing 100 companies each year doing that. And it's been interesting. I mean, now there's hundreds and hundreds of companies that are wow. emerging that are targeting this market and they're building on that platform. They're building on that stack. And so it's accelerated the amount of innovation and the amount of new capabilities that government agencies can kind of tap into. So, you know, cloud, it's important to remember, you know, a decade ago was illegal in government. You couldn't <laughs> one premise data requirements. So, you know, even if agencies found a, a nice, you know, company that they wanted to work with, they couldn't put things in a cloud environment because the procurement rules and the regulations on data storage didn't keep up with that. Now we've seen that loosen. Now agencies are working with startups, you know, all on all kinds of interesting experiments and finding new ways to push the envelope. So I think it's a, it's definitely an important part of kind of the innovation stack of, uh, of state and local government agencies. Do you know what portion of that billion dollar VC money that went to GovTech last year, what technology category was the dominant yeah. A piece of that pie was a cybersecurity change. Man, what, what was the, what was the. Yeah, it's a, a great question. So, you know, when we do our benchmark surveys and ask state and local IT leaders, what's your top priority? Number one priority, always a cybersecurity. Yeah. Like, what is the least funded thing in a state local government IT budget? Cybersecurity. cybersecurity. <laughs> so less than 2% of a, an overall for, uh, IT in state and local government is expanded towards cyber. Oops. And of course it's reactionary like, like you see, right? So, so that is a challenge. I think that when you look at the breakdown, you know, historically it has been things that are physical, you know, hardware, network infrastructure, data center, data center. Wi-Fi infrastructure. Yeah. Right. But over the last three years, that's changed. And now we're seeing services, software as a service, managed services, you know, the things that are virtual, you know, to Mark Andreessen's point, software eating the world, it's eating yeah, yeah. the government IT budget too. And so that has really become a large uh, center of where that budgetary funding is being expended is in that category of software services and kind of managed services on top of it. So we hope to see more cyber spending, but we still have this CapEx OpEx debate that takes place in our market at times because it's not the CIOs, it's actually the governing bodies and the governance structure of state and local agencies that are used to the model of going to Best Buy, buying Microsoft Word, owning it, right? Those days are over. Now you have to think about an operational model where you're expending it on a regular basis and continuing to invest in it and ownership is kind of one thing that gets passed down the road. So it's an interesting time. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, it's a great point. And hey, taking that to the next level, right? You know, where, where these organizations are happening, like we have the now and then, but now we've got this future of smart cities, right? And smart cities are taking it to the next level. Mm -hmm. I was hanging out with my buddy, Miguel Gamino, as you know, he's in charge of yep. cities for MasterCard. He's also in yeah. Austin, one of the BT150 alumni. We should all get together. <laughs> down yeah, down we down should. We should. Miguel's a great guy. <laughs> and, and as you know, he's right? got the best shoe game, by the way, just if you know Miguel. That, that he does. That he does. <laughs> <laughs> no, he does. And, and, the, and the question is like, how do we, 
what, what is next for smart cities, right? There's a lot of infrastructure that's required to make that happen, uh, but we're seeing a lot of investment coming back in the cities, but we're just at the point where density as a business model no longer exists, right? People are moving further out to exurbs. People are trying to get bigger spaces for themselves. People are looking at, you know, I mean, getting out of cities for, for multiple reasons. Yeah. Where does it I go? Mean, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think from a smart city standpoint, there's, you know, some things that are holding back the full realization of what a smart city can be. I mean, I think number one, it, we're, we're very quick to latch onto the tech, right? The shiny objects, IOT, let's make every trash can in our community connected to the internet, and every street light connected to the internet, right? So the challenge is that's a lot of capital that you have to expend for a use case that may not justify that expense, right? And so I think we have to take a step back and look at what is the problem we're trying to solve? And that's where I say it starts with people, right? So one of my close collaborators, Chelsea Collier, and I wrote kind of a smart cities playbook where we realized, you know, part of the problem with sustainable smart cities is that we're not starting with people. We're starting with perceived solutions that can solve perceived problems at a top level. But if we really look at our population, kind of like the business model canvas, right? If we look at our audience that we're trying to serve, and understand what their unique needs are. Does it really make sense to have a chat bot or a voice assistant for a service mm -hmm. that costs you know X amount of dollars if only one tenth of one percent of the population is going to use it? So how do we understand our people to have the highest degree of impact with the technology that's there? And we also have to recognize that smart cities aren't all about tech. So sometimes it's just a process hack that you have to do to get through it. I think the biggest challenge is we also have to look at the built environment of existing cities. So where I've seen failures is when we go out and try to build, you know, these shiny object cities mm. that test, you know, the potential of technology, although it's great MVPs for that. At the end of the day, it's only going to be sustainable if you can retrofit it to what already exists in the built environment. So I think we have to start to think about the ecosystem of these existing cities to understand how do we leverage what we already have to make more out of that, to get smarter at what we're doing. And, you know, what IoT sensors do we already have that we can maybe flip around into other use cases that can solve some of these other problems. So I think we have to look at that. And then of course, you know, we have to do it together, right? You know, right now, unfortunately, when it comes to smart cities, you know, the international community is really leading the charge here when it comes yeah. to the standardization of this technology. And I think we have to start to look at how do we take, take a people-centric approach that focuses on retrofitting the existing environment that's yeah. standardized in an applicable way across big and small communities uh, across the country. And I think that's where we'll start to see some magic. That's awesome. Was that a reference to Alex Osterwalder's book? That's uh, right. That's right. Oh wow! wow. That uh, Dustin, Dustin is a deep thinker. That was that was he snuck that. That was that was awesome. That's actually a great book and a great reference that I use for government agencies, especially when they yeah. have governing members that go to conferences and they come back with shiny object syndrome yeah. and they're like, "Yeah, we need to come back and implement AI at the edge." And I'm like, "I got a business model canvas on that yeah. idea and show me the value and also the long-term cost associated with that." So there you go. Yeah, the nine building blocks makes you think logically, brings clarity of thought. Uh, and his latest book, uh, Invincible Company, is really another great read. Uh, yeah, it's one of my white, 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 white books over here. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I should have looked. You've made it easy. You've made it easy to me to, for any of us to find it. Um, my question to you is, um, you know, uh, I, we just found out before the show you live 10 minutes from the Gigafactory. Yeah. And it makes me think, What's the role of private sector to to help under develop the smart city blueprint, but also help at scale by having a company that is, has audacious goals, but also invest enough R and D to really 
address the, the, the elasticity or the mo mobility of what you, you said. Can you come to an existing city yeah. and retrofit it to be smart? And there's only a few companies I can probably count on one hand that has, have demonstrated to me that they have the ability to do that. Uh, so private, private company working with government to really make this uh, come, to, to come to life. Yeah, I think private sector plays a, a critical role in it, right? Agencies can't do it by themselves. Private sectors can't do it by themselves, as, we, as we've seen. Yeah. But it's that collaborative kind of connectivity between them that I think is going to be so critical. I mean, you know, you think about public-private partnerships, right? And the previous kind of model of how we financed, you know, infrastructure deployments. I think we kind of have to look at a new model there, kind of what we're calling P4s, public-public-private yeah. partnerships, where... You know, it's it's taking that private yeah. sector involvement, but also working with not just one agency, but other agencies, right? To kind of look at the demonstration of scalability from one environment to another, thinking broader about the potential impact. So if I were a private sector company, probably one of the ones, you know, that you, you're thinking of, you know, I would focus on broader impact. Don't just pick mm -hmm. one regional area, you know, pick uh, multiple cities to test things in simultaneously. Look at developing standards for data, standards for technology, uh, standards for interoperability across the core systems in government and, you know, open source the heck out of it and make it shareable, you know, make it something easy to use. I mean, I think that's kind of what's missing right now is everything right now from a standard standpoint is proprietary. Yeah, and so yeah. there's a reason why you can't compare your data to another city's data, you know, in a way that's helpful or useful for you because it's all stored differently and vendors yeah. have locked it up. So I think we have to start to get a little bit better about how we broaden that. But the private sector plays such a critical role in that ecosystem of how they do it. Sage advice, sage advice. It's great advice. We are here with one of the top thinkers in GovTech. And of course, Dustin, Chief Innovation Officer at eRepublic. You can follow him at Dustin Heisler, D-U-S-T-I-N-H-A-I-S-L-E-R on Twitter. Thank you for being on the show. And of course, we'll see you at CCE. So take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Dustin. Big thinker uh, in a very important, very important space. Okay, speaking of big thinkers, this is... This is where you would bring up the cleanup hitter to hit a grand slam. <laughs> and, uh, so I should have used a different terminology or different sport given our next guest last name is Brady. Uh, Susan Brady is CEO, CEO of Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership and author of Arrive and Thrive. Susan is a Deloitte uh, Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women and Leadership. Uh, at Simmons University and the first chief executive officer of the Simmons University Institute of Inclusive Leadership. The Institute develops the mindset and skills uh, of leaders and uh, at all stages of life so they can foster gender parity and culture of inclusion. As a relationship expert, leadership well-being coach, author, and speaker, Susan educates leaders and executives globally on fostering self-awareness and optimal leadership. Susan advises executive teams on how to work together effectively and create inclusion and gender parity in organization. Susan is passionate about work with women at all levels of the organization leadership to fully realize and manifest their leadership potential. Susan is author of Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. You can follow Susan on Twitter as Susan M. Brady One, the number one. Welcome, Susan, to Disrupt TV. Uh, I have two Twitter handles. And Susan and Brady one was like so 2018. This S. Mac T. Brady. Is oh, all right. I'm sorry about this, that. It's like, do you know how hard it is to, to, to cancel a Twitter account? 
I do. I do. Oh, good. Yes. And you kind of owe me one because you know you did introduce me with a sports metaphor, but I, you know, I won't, I won't make fun of you for that. It is the play. He's, of, he's my favorite player. He's my favorite player of yes. all sports. No, no. Let's be clear. It's been a really good run living in Boston with the last name Brady. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. You know, now he's in Tampa. We've got some friends down in Tampa. Kind of cool. yeah. That's awesome. We've got all of East Coast as fans. So, you know, from sports to executive coaching. I mean, this is kind of where we're headed, right? You know, you're coaching like, you know, business stars. You're pushing, you know, female leaders, the future of what's happening in terms of, you know, where we're going in DEI. Um, what led you to write this book, right? I mean, you're sitting in the middle of the action. You see what's going on and you're like, I've got an idea. What drove you to write the yeah. book? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, look, you know, if you haven't noticed, we're not doing a very good job creating gender equity in leadership, okay? Uh, there's there's uh, very few of us in C-level positions. And too often, you know, when we're encouraged, when women are encouraged to get their foot in the door, we're sort of leaving our women out there to sort of figure it out on their own. And, you know, in any context where you are the underrepresented population, it's just harder to get stuff done and to know how to operate. And so, you know, the book is our attempt to start honest conversations and help women uh, with the resources and advice and support they need to thrive. Um, you know, we're, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't really want to just survive anymore in leadership. I, I want to thrive and I want to see more, more women too thriving uh, among, among the men. You know, when I look at the seven principles, you know, investing in your best self, embracing authenticity, cultivating courage, fostering resilience, inspiring a bold vision, creating a healthy team environment, and committing to the work of an inclusive leader. I, I can benefit from this incredible wisdom. So I was going to ask you, like, who should read this? But I think I know the answer. Anybody who wants to be a good leader and build a great team. Yeah. Is, is that a fair answer? Totally. Look, look, this, <laughs> the seven practices, I think, are really, really helpful leadership practices, yeah. um, however you identify. You know, the wrapper of this book and, frankly, the context for some of the practices is, you know, geared towards what it means to be a woman navigating. You know, if you wake up woman, the, the world's a different place and you actually do need to foster more resilience. And think about your authenticity. By the way, side note, uh, Amy Weaver is featured from Salesforce, president of uh, Salesforce is featured in our book. We interviewed Amy and uh, she was really helpful in bringing authenticity to life for us in, the se amazing. in our second practice. Yeah. She's, she's not, not only authentic, but like super likable. Uh, she's so accessible. I mean, we'll go to events and she's one of maybe second, third highest ranking uh, executive at Salesforce, president. Yeah. She, she's accessible to anyone. Uh, you know, there, there isn't an entourage protecting her as a president of a giant company. Uh, she's just, she's, she's terrific. So you know, I love so that about her because, you know, she uh, she defies the likability bias. You guys know what the likability bias is. It's one of the, the, the most common biases women face at work. And that is, you know, if you approach someone with a hand of likability, uh, you know, those of all genders will want to trade off your likability. Well, you must not be as smart. Uh, whereas if you're not as likable, uh, you're more believably uh, intelligent and credible. And so I, I, I do a lot of work with men and I make sure to point out uh, women like Amy, but also, you know, I consider myself actually pretty intelligent and pretty likable. This is what this looks like. It's okay. We can have fun. We can get along and we can have really smart conversations all at the same time. So uh, it's important to just notice when we try to, when we do that trade-off. 
That's yeah. awesome. Well, Ray is very likable and super smart as well. So go ahead, Ray. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off. There's a trade-off, I think. I, I, you have to be less likable, I think. I'd rather be you less can. likable. I don't think you can do that, Ray. I don't think it's in your DNA. Go ahead. <laughs> so, but hey, let's let's go back to a little bit of things, things that you've encountered, things that are important to you. What are one or two of your greatest skill sets that have helped you um, survive, thrive, and, and been successful? So. Well, you know, I, I'd say I, I, uh, yeah, I was raised by wolves. You know, my, my, um, I was raised by a single father. I had like men who are, you know, my minister as a kid and um, my mentors and coaches. And uh, I think I, I did, I really believed in, in meritocracy. You know, I really did not think the world was going to be any different for me. I was just going to go for it. So I, I do have a sense of self-confidence and I think a little bit of like blindness when it comes to you know, oh, I'm, I'm a woman and I look different and I act different. So um, I think my ability to persevere and, and lead with some level of confidence and, and be bold has helped me. Uh, and and also to just be genuine, you know, I guess that's that's part of it. Um, but I've had to I've had to wake up to my own impact, you guys. And that's that's like the first practice of the book in, you know, investing in your best self is is about understanding who you are and how you show up. Uh, and and also being really conscious that sometimes the, you know our intention and our impact don't align for other people, and so we have to pay attention to the gap between our intention and impact. And you know, the the higher up in an organization you get, or the more power you have in any situation, um, the harder people laugh at your jokes, and the less people tell you the truth. And so it's incumbent upon us leaders to check in and say, "Hey, did that land as I meant it? What? Because my intention was here." And my so I learned how to do that, and I think that that helped to balance my uh, sort of boldness, right? Is, is I, I'm, I'm confident I'm bold, but I've also, I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I try to be self-aware. Um, my, my teenage girls might, might tell you, I'm, I think I'm better at that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I try, I try. Yeah. You know, it's uh, when I look at the seven practices, so I'm an immigrant refugee. So, and I think when you leave your birth country, whether it's by choice, or in my case, or, or my family's case, not by choice, it, it's disruptive. Uh, it's a big enough disruption that you end up building resilience. Uh, uh, so I, 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 when I reflect, I feel like, you know, I always had, um, uh, you know, uh, persistence, toughness to, 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 when, you know, fell down, I, I would get back up. But having said that, I did lack courage. When I reflect on opportunities that were afforded to me early in my career, I, I passed up some amazing opportunities because of self-doubt. Uh, so persistence was there, but I didn't cultivate enough courage to take that bold step. How do you cultivate courage? Like what advice would you give to, to your readers in terms of, uh, you know, being able to uh, believe in yourself a bit more? Or a whole lot more. <laughs> it's 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 a great question. You know, on Wednesday, uh, Simmons Simmons University hosts the Simmons Leadership Conference. It was our forty third year. We had over sixty five hundred attendees. We do this virtually. We've done it since the pandemic. Virtually, first forty years we're in person, and we're going to try this hybrid world next year. Um, so uh, we were the whole theme of the conference was was courage and connection. And when I was um, researching the book, and when we when my co authors and I were writing the chapter about courage. What the research showed us time and time again is, you know, courage is 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 not the absence of fear. What it is, it's just the presence of vulnerability. And and the more we risk take, the more we sort of try new things, the more our muscle of courage can 
um, can grow, can strengthen. Um, and the number one, number two, number three piece of advice I have for people who ask, how can I be more courageous is to not go it alone, right? So you borrow your confidence from other people who have done it before. You call, you make calls, you ask people to have your back. You check in with the people that love you, who will love you even if you fall on your face and fail, you know, like uh, you were just not meant to, to do to little or big things that scare us by ourselves. And so I just remind people of that. That's great advice. That is really important, right? And you know, one of the things that you really talk about is is this need for embracing authenticity, right? Um, what does that mean for you? Why 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 is that so important, right? When when you engage and work with people, so 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 look, I think especially in this in this world, like you know, in in March of 2020, we stopped being able to avoid the human resource that we don't like or the resources and we saw the human beings we all saw human beings right and uh you know some of us couldn't fake what was behind us really and <laughs> and and we had to, we were we got real it's actually why empathy first leadership is becoming uh you know a necessity for all leaders because people want to be treated like human beings and here's the thing you can't actually treat people like human beings if they if if you don't know who you are as a human being and and you don't show up as real and so there's a thirst for genuineness right now from our leaders and if we you if you are faking it you will be sniffed out period, the end. So, you know, it's a moment of time where we have so much permission to be real. Um, and, you know, look, I, the Thriver we interviewed for the book, Carla Harris, um, she she would tell you, do you guys know Carla? She's awesome. Has she been on your show? This is 275, 276, yeah. Uh, no, but she... I, Hopefully you make the introduction and we can have her on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, Carla she's, from Morgan, right? Morgan Stanley. Yeah, Morgan Stanley. Yeah, she's yep, awesome. So, so she has this great quote, and I quote her all the time. I go to the church of Carla Harris. Uh, your your authentic your authentic self is your competitive advantage because no one can be you the way you can be you. So why would you hide behind a bushel? Why would you dim your light? Um, that's you, right? I know there's risks out there. I, I, uh, you know, I'm not advocating for people to, you know, people sometimes ask me like how. Um, how do you handle uncomfortable dress conversations at work? You know, if you have to give feedback to somebody about what they're wearing. And I'm like, I, I think it's really simple. I was like, you know, if you're if you're going to play tennis, you don't wear a bathing suit. If you're going to go to the beach, you don't wear an evening gown. Like, you know, if you're going to go to work, don't wear something that you're going to, you know, go to the beach in or go to a nightclub in or go to the gym in. You know, I mean, nowadays it doesn't really matter. But um, <laughs> other than that, like, be, be you. Bring your, bring your goodness, you know, part of... Part of this is really about that thirst. I think women in particular, and this is part of what we've said in the book, we've had to, we've had to sort of step into a little bit of veneer of perfection because there's, you know, there's suspicion about our ability to lead, uh, and one mistake, and and it's like, you know, it's like ten guys making it's equivalent of a hundred guys making a mistake when a when a senior woman leader makes a mistake because there's just not enough of us to imprint positive. And so, you know, if, if we can be real and stop trying to be who everybody thinks we should be um, and be ourselves and connect with the people who um, are, are along the journey with us, all the better. We can create better results all the way around. That's right? terrific advice. Uh, yeah. When I think of success, you know, if, if you like yourself, you like what you do and how you do it, you're in a good, you're in a potentially good position. But my question to you is when clients come to you, when exec senior executives come to you, 
how do you know whether they're thriving or not? Or do they know whether they're thriving? How do, you, how do you know when you're thriving? By the way, this is really hard stuff to do, right? Because we're told almost everywhere we look that we're not okay the way we are, right? The th I mean, the whole com commercial sales machine of selling, I don't know, everything from lipstick to a better diet plan um, tells us, feeds off of, you are not okay the way you are. So it is tough work and we have to return to a place of, hang on, you know what? I am enough. I am okay. I can do this. I've got a friend over here who did this. I've got support over there. Um, you, uh, what did you ask me? <laughs> how do you know you're thriving? Uh, well, how do you know you're thriving? Okay, so so uh, uh, it's a great question. Uh, you know you're thriving, I think, my definition of thriving is when my strengths and talents come together with where I feel called to be in service of others, right? Where other people are paying attention and I'm doing what I'm good at and it brings me joy and vitality. Uh, I'd say the surround of, the, of that is, is your well-being. So if I can reinforce... Uh, feeling like I'm lit up and other people are receiving me, right? We have to pay attention to how we're being, you know, perception is the co-pilot to reality. So even though you intend to do and come across this way, you might land this way with others and you got to check in about that. And thriving is when you are, I think it's your light. I think when you lose track of time doing something, when you really feel heard and seen by another person, when you feel like you're moving the ball forward, I don't know, for me, that's thriving. Uh, but everyone has to define that for themselves. And we, we do talk about that. Uh, can, I, can I just follow up? Um, uh, uh, before joining my current employer, you know, majority of my career, I worked for private equity companies which means that I, there was so many times that I felt really good about myself, my work, my team, but I didn't have equity in the company. Mm. <laughs> so the compensation piece, uh, I had a blind spot. Then I joined a public company, did the same level of work, same effort, same energy, same joy, but I had equity in the company and I feel so much better in terms of thriving because it impacted the qual my quality of life. Yeah. So how much does getting paid for the work with, with balance and equity, equality come into play in terms of really thriving uh, or, or really feeling good, but also knowing that you're getting rewarded for the, that goodness that you feel? I don't know yes. if my question is clear, but, but... No, but you just told me a lot about yourself. Um, and what I know to be true is that for you, uh, it really matters to be compensated for the value you bring. And be humble and kind, but know your worth is that, a lesson right. I learned the hard way. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I you know, in my in my last book, I, I wrote about uh, about how uh, women negotiate because we get a bad rap about negotiating. Women are actually as effective as men negotiating on behalf of everyone, uh, but for themselves. And so I would say, you know, if there's if there's an opportunity for women to think, myself included, about their value, uh, literal value, and about the value they create for others and for their organizations, um, you know, I can't talk about this too much when companies bring me in to speak, sure. but I I will usually advocate for women to um, to be sure that they are negotiating for their full value uh, because uh, we oftentimes leave some value on the table. I need a Susan Brady in my life 10 years ago, but yeah, that's awesome advice. Yeah, yeah. sorry, Greg, go ahead. No, no, a lot of great lessons learned, right? Invest in your best self, get the courage, build authenticity, resilience is important, bold vision, you know, be inclusive leader. The one that really gets me is the healthy team environment. We see a lot of folks that are great leaders, great individual folks, but their environments are not necessarily there. How do you create an environment that is supportive, collaborative, and healthy? 
Mm, oh, I love that question. You know, we this is the chapter actually. So th the book is, you know, each each practice in the book has, you know, there's lots of books just on that practice, just on authenticity or just on teams. For the teamwork practice, what we did is we did a distillation and we came up with a rubric of six actions. And I want to tell you about the last one because I think it's the key to successful leadership. I think it's the key to empathy first leadership. I think it's the key to having an inclusive culture. And it's this whole riddle about psychological safety, right? So um, how do we get psychological safety? We make it okay to have hard conversations. We don't shame, we don't blame. Um, we can take risks together and we can make, you know, we, we bring our unique selves to the table. So you feel comfortable bringing your unique self to the table. And then we stay in and we ask for your opinion. And then we don't wrong you when you make a mistake, right? We say, okay, we're gonna try harder. So I would say, um, you know, I can't, I can't tell you about the whole chapter in our last couple minutes here, but Ray, you know, the, the safety piece when that's missing, and you guys probably know about the research yeah, at Google, uh, Project Aristotle. Yeah, I mean, they they looked at like why are great, why are our best teams, you know, the best teams, and they came down with, oh my gosh, they've got psychological safety, and you know, all Maslow's of this is hierarchy. Maslow's hierarchy, right? So I see you. I, you know, we're, it goes back to being human beings at work. It goes back to saying like, I want you to feel good about you. I want to feel good about me. Now let's go make some magic. Let's go make some good stuff happen. Making magic insights in your book. Amazing oh. magic every day. Susan yeah. Brady, CEO of the Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership and author of Arrive and Thrive. Definitely check it out and check it out at her Twitter handle, S McKenty Brady. Uh, we'll get that one right. <laughs> so, Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you so much. Whoa, <laughs> an hour has so gone by. Much, so much uh, wisdom nuggets that Susan just dropped on us in 20 minutes. It's uh, got to watch the episode again this weekend uh, and just uh, make sure I captured all of it. Uh, uh, yeah, so Ray, this is my favorite question at the end of every show. Recap, <laughs> recap for folks that may have tuned in late. New business model, innovation, ecosystem building, the importance of public private sector and the amazing growth of venture investing in the government tech space, tune of a billion dollars last year. Uh, what's $135 billion gov tech market. And of course, uh, you know, leadership uh, where you're not just surviving, but you're thriving uh, regardless of, regardless of gender, because I found it, uh, all of the insights from uh, Susan to be incredible. Your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, this was an interesting insight into public sector, private sector, the individual. We are at a moment where we're all trying to reinvent ourselves. We're trying to think about how we're going to get there and be successful, right? Each of our guests today shared an insight that was, you know, useful for every part or every aspect of our lives. And we, we, the only thing we didn't hit was like family and children at the rate we were going. So, <laughs> so yeah. we've got some, we, we've got some great stuff here. And, and what we, you know, what we learned, especially, you know, really from Susan, I mean, there, there's a lot of leadership, a lot of lessons and techniques. Um, definitely. I mean, there's, you know, stuff that we can do to improve inclusive leadership. And a lot of those lessons also apply to, um, you know, males as well, you know, in terms of like, you know, being more aware, being more, uh, you know, inclusive in terms of how you involve people, being advocates uh, along the way. Um, and then when we think about what Dustin was talking about, I mean, government is about to be reinvented, right? Mm -hmm. That centralized control by the top 100 GovCon government contractor 
Reserves. I mean, it was a lock for a long time. I mean, how do you create a lock? You create more regulation, right? And what we're doing at this moment is we're going from centralization, decentralization, regulation to deregulation, and there's some opportunities there that weren't there before, not only in the funding, but also in the level of innovation and access that uh, organizations can have to, to help improve government services and, of course, the GovTech aspect that's important. Uh, and, of course, you know, Shajit's been seeing what's happening, right? Those new partnerships, those new opportunities, it really talks about not just the ecosystems that organizations traditionally have thought about, but new ecosystems that are being created with new stakeholders, especially partners and customers and even their own employees. And so we're going to see more and more of that as we go forward. Yeah, it was surprising to see how active a $46 billion conglomerate in terms of inviting startup ecosystem, higher ed. It seems like they're building an ecosystem inclusive of multiple sectors. And regardless of the size of the company, as long as they can demonstrate value. And of course, security and scale, as, as we heard in government, is still important in terms of inviting startups to be part of the tech stack, uh, which makes sense, which makes sense. Okay, that was episode 275. We just finished our 846th interview. For those of you counting, next week, episode 276. John Meller, CEO of Domo, will join us. Jay Menon, uh, Managing Director of Publicis Sapiens. And Vikram Mahotra, uh, author uh, and CEO of Excellence and senior partner at McKinsey Company. So we've got some big, big brains joining us next week as well. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching, and uh, we'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. See you, everybody. So.